It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, isn't it? It's, uh, it really is a joy on Sunday mornings. I mean, getting our kids, you know, get your shoes on and eat that breakfast and all those typical things that happen in young families. Many of you are smiling because you've been there or you are there or you were that kid who was always uh, not combing their hair and not eating, but uh, it is a joy to, to get ready for worship and to come into the house of the Lord when you're expecting the Lord to meet you, when you're expecting great things to happen in worship, when we are expecting lives change, the young lives of Lily Roberts and of Jada McGlasson who are starting their discipleship journey much like my son Jude is and many others in our church who are uh, beginning their, their faith walks with the Lord as they follow Christ as their Lord and Savior through the public profession of faith and through baptism. I think about Brian Casey being baptized at the men's retreat and how his journey has led him now to Lipscomb University as a college student and just how the Lord changes lives. To be a part of that is just absolutely amazing and humbling and overwhelming and uh, just I'm so excited. And that's what our psalm is about today. Our text is about a group of people who are excited about coming into the house of the Lord. I don't know if, if Sunday morning is a drag for you. I don't know if it's a big chore for you, I don't know if your parents make you come, teenagers or children. I don't know if it's, it's something that you really have to force yourself to do. But my prayer and hope is that we would look forward to Sunday mornings with joy, with expectation, with, with fervent eagerness to meet with the living God here in this place. As we continue our, our series through the, the, the book of Psalms, we've been talking about worship as, as God's prescription for the world, for what the world needs. And it may be my all-time favorite book to preach from in the world because I love music, and these are a collection of songs. The Psalms are a hymn book, and they're the song book of Israel. And they're these beautiful, sometimes really brutally honest, raw Psalms crying out from the depths of their souls, my God, why have you forsaken me? All these really raw emotions that you see in the Psalms that all of us can relate to. They're, they're poems that were meant to be used by God's people together in times of, of corporate worship gathered together in, in God's house as they sing these songs back to God, raising their voices in unison. And when I was a kid, we had Bible drill at my church. Anybody grew up doing Bible drill? That was a big thing at my church. You had the sword drill. You'd present your, your Bible, and they'd say, turn to you know, Ecclesiastes 2, and you had to find it as fast as you could, and whoever got there first. I was competitive. I still am. So that was, that was fun for me. I enjoyed those kinds of races that we had. But I remember learning as part of Bible drill the different groupings of the books of the Bible. Do you remember this? The first five books of the Old Testament are considered the books of the, the law. And then you have books of history. And you move on to things like prophets, you know, the, the, the books of the prophets. But you also have these books of wisdom that are in the middle there in the Old Testament. And I always thought, you know, that was kind of a, a cop-out. I was like, okay, Proverbs obviously belongs in wisdom, right? It's a collection of wise sayings by King Solomon. But Psalms is just a bunch of songs. Why, is, why are songs considered wisdom? What can we possibly learn from songs? <laughs> but now, as a somewhat older person, I've come to realize there is much wisdom to be gained from the bards, from the songwriters, who have much to teach us about the human condition as well as the theological reality of who God is and who we are in relation 
to him. Songwriters have a lot to, to, to tell us about how they can impart wisdom into our souls in the deepest places in a way that no teacher, no classroom in the world could ever possibly hope to do. And the, the Psalms are, are not just songs, right? They're, they're songs of worship to be used in corporate worship, which when you take them all together, for God's people, they're a prescription of praise. This whole series is about how God in his infinite grace and, and mercy has given us these songs as a prescription for how to thrive, for how to really flourish in the world as beings who are made in the Imago Dei, who are made in his image. It teaches us how to prosper by, by walking according to a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of, of giving God thanks and gratitude and praise for all that he's done for us. The way we eat breakfast can do that. The way that we, we go to work can do that. That's how we were meant to flourish, is by walking in this lifestyle of worship. And last week, we, we saw how worship is the prescription for missions, right? Worship is, is both, John Piper says, worship is both the fuel for missions and the goal of missions. Worship, he says, exists because, uh, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. We, we go to the world to increase the glorifying of our great God. We go to places where there is no worship to engender worship of God, to engender people who are appropriately giving glory to that which is most glorious, the triune God of the universe. And this week we're going to see how worship is, is God's prescription for satisfaction, for, for being content. You know what the opposite of contentment is? Greed. God's prescription for being content is worship. God's prescription for being fulfilled in your purpose and, and in your sense of longing, it all boils down to worship. I hope I can show you that from the scriptures today. But in order to know what satisfaction is, first let's talk about longing. Have you ever really longed for something? Have you ever had a visceral reaction because you wanted something so bad? Have you ever maybe been homesick so badly that you just wanted home and you had a longing for a sense of home? I can remember the first time I went to Australia. Was, I was 18 years old and I had the, the, the amazing privilege of going with my high school uh, seniors from First Baptist Church Nashville for two weeks in Australia and I loved it. I fell in love with the culture and the people there and I got real close to a pastor there and he invited me to come back after my freshman year in college as a 19-year-old who didn't know anything, didn't have any money, and my parents somehow said they were okay with it, I couldn't believe it, and they put me on a plane for, for two months in Australia. And I was, you know, I love to travel, I love new people, but I was all alone, and I remember I was, I was totally fine until about the seventh week or so in, we were at a camp in Katoomba, this city about an hour and a half north of Sydney up in the Blue Mountains. And I remember looking over the Blue Mountains and it, it seemed like Mars. It was completely foreign. It looked, these gum trees that are kind of this bluish green haze over these rocky hills. And even the sky looks different in Australia. And normally I would say, that's awesome. It looks like Mars. But I remember having this weird reaction that I wasn't prepared for, where it's something in my gut said, you are a stranger in a strange land. You don't belong here. 
you're a Tennessee boy. You know, you, you belong in the rolling hills of, of Tennessee with, with the deciduous trees and, a, you know, totally different environment, literally the other side of the world, a different hemisphere. And I had this deep sense of longing for home. All I wanted was to, to see my family and to be back in like, you know, my bed with my covers and my pillow and to eat a meal that my mom cooked. The, the pull of home is, is, is visceral, right? It's, have you ever felt that? That's, that's sort of what this songwriter is talking about in Psalm 84 today. This sense of longing to be where he belongs. Longing deep within his soul to be where he most feels he is himself at home. This pull is seen all throughout this psalm. We know that the writer is one of the sons of Korah, it says in the title. These were the, the singers who helped lead the, the temple worship at, in Jerusalem. And so I'm thinking maybe when he wrote this song, he, maybe he was part of like a, a Jewish diaspora. You know, several times the, the Jewish people had been scattered throughout the world due to persecution. And maybe he finds himself like Abraham and like I was in, in Katumba as a stranger in a strange land where he doesn't belong. Maybe he's totally separated and cut off from his, his people, his culture, his, his way of life, his customs, his music, his food, all those things. Maybe he's desperately longing to be back home where his longing is satisfied in the one place where he can be completely fulfilled to his core. And for him, he knows there's only one place in the world where he's going to find that. And that's on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the, the city of Zion, the city of God, in the holy place of worship in the temple. Look at verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty. This guy loves God's house. It's, it's the holy place where God dwells, where his presence is thick in the air, the temple. There's nowhere else on earth he'd rather be. And this is not just attachment to like a geographical place. This is something much deeper than that. This is personal. This isn't about the, the architecture of the temple that he longs to see. It's, look at verse 2. It's deeper. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. See, this is, this is all about the living God who makes this place home. Who makes this place where He belongs because the Spirit of the Lord is there. There's a, a, a song by Edward Sharp called Home, and it says, Home is wherever I'm with you. That's what it is for him. Home is wherever he's with God. That is home for him. That's where he belongs. That's where he's completely fulfilled and satisfied. And an attachment to a place can become nothing more than like a, a shallow you know, escape, right? It's, it's okay to have a place of, of refuge and of, of relaxation, a place like a favorite beach or a a lake that you go to, or maybe it's a favorite camping spot, that's all fine. But if that place is what satisfies your soul, then it has become an idol. And, and you are an error. If the place is what satisfies your soul, then you're missing the point. When the Lord comes to the prophet Elijah in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, 
he, he's been threatened by Queen Jezebel. She says, oh, I'm going to kill you. You killed my prophets, I'm going to kill you. And so he runs, he flees out of fear to the old familiar caves of Horeb. And he's hiding in a cave because he's so scared. And God shows up and, and it says this in, in chapter 19, there he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you, why are you scared? I'm God. I've been with you from the very beginning. You don't have to be scared and run away. It was uh, the old familiar caves where he could escape the threats of Jezebel. Instead of taking refuge in the Lord, he was hiding in a cave. And God says, what are you doing here? That's, that's not the kind of longing that God's talking about here. That, that's a fleeing. That's motivated by fear. Elijah runs to the caves motivated by fear. The singer of Psalm 84 runs to the temple motivated by love, which ultimately trumps fear every time. So it's not about longing for the temple itself. There's nothing special about the temple itself, really. We know that in the ancient Near East, there were several temples that were much more extravagant, much more impressive by human standards. The, the Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world in, in Ephesus. And when the deacon Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was dragged before the Sanhedrin, right before he was stoned, he was reminding the Sanhedrin, this isn't about a place. There's nothing special about the Temple Mount itself. It's the living God that makes it special. He says in Acts 7, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. God lives wherever he wants to. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom in his presence. So this psalm can't ultimately be about longing for a mere place. It's about longing for the living God to whom my heart and flesh cry out with joy. Keep reading verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. If the lowly sparrow finds a home in the temple, you know, nesting in the walls and the little holes of the temple, how much more will we as God's people who are made in his image find a refuge in the dwelling presence of the Lord? You know, I, I had to ask Dr. John Hash when he came to my office a few weeks ago, at the age of 88, Dr. Hash, why is it, and he corrected me, he said, John, please, John, John, why is it that, that you're just coming now? What is it that, that had prevented you from coming all those years? And he said, you know, I, he said part of it was I never felt worthy. I never felt worthy. And he said, and I'll, I'm ready now, he said, the world behind me, the cross before me, the church can vote me up or down. <laughs> and he meant it. And it was so touching. I, I got teary him just telling me that story. Because the, the, the truth of the gospel that had finally pervaded his heart had convinced him that he is worthy through the cross of Christ. That apart from the cross of Christ, none of us are worthy. We know that the, the gospel says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and made us worthy of the presence of the living God. Not because of any righteousness of our own, not because of any merit that we bring to the table, but because of his grace and his amazing, boundless love for us, lavished on us in abundance. If the sparrow finds a home in the house of the Lord, how much more will we find home in the presence of God? 
let's remember grace alone makes us worthy to enter into his courts with praise, not our own doing. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Three times throughout this psalm, the word blessed appears. It's a, it's a beatitude, right? And the word in Hebrew that's typically used for blessed is baruch, like baruch atah right? Blessed be the Lord, right? Blessed be you, O Lord. And, and here it's different. It's ashri, which means happy. It's like the New Testament too. The word that's, that's used for blessed when Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, and so on. Matthew chapter 5, Susan Clayton's favorite passage. She says she reads it all the time. That, those same things are happening there. It's the same word that can be translated as happy or blessed because it's the same thing, right? To be blessed by God is to be truly happy indeed. That is a deep and abounding joy that the world cannot shake or ever steal from you. These beatitudes are all part of God's prescription for happiness and blessing because they're the same thing. And here the songwriter summarizes the first four verses, right? He's saying, happy are those who live in God's presence, who dwell in God's courts, who constantly abide in, in the glory and majesty of God and, and live a lifestyle of worship, constantly glorifying the Lord everywhere they go in this life. And then he goes on, verse 5, blessed or happy, this is the second one, are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. So the, the first part of the psalm says, happy are those who dwell in God's house. And now this middle part says, happy are those who journey to Zion, to the holy city where God dwells. Happy are those who make their pilgrimage to worship because the joy of the Lord is their strength, not anything found in this world. And the map, it says, that the map of the way there to Jerusalem is in their hearts. I love that. The, the, the route to the temple is, is, is built into their hearts. They were made for this trip. There's something deep inside them that longs to be connected to truth and to reality that is only found in the Lord. Ecclesiastes 3.11, I love this verse. It says that God has put eternity in our hearts. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity into our hearts. He's made us with a longing for him, with a deep desire. This is why all these millennials are on this, this timeless search for truth and for meaning, for purpose in their lives. You go to any bookstore, the spirituality section is enormous. It's all about people who are searching for truth and for fundamental basis on which to build their lives. We believe as Christians that's found in Jesus Christ and the triune God. St. Augustine, the, the Bishop of Hippo from the fourth century, famously wrote in his confessions, God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This is why worship of the triune God satisfies like nothing else on earth. Because when we joyfully enter into God's actual presence, we are walking these ancient roots that were placed into our hearts from the beginning. We're fulfilling 
the core of what it means to be human, to be made in God's image. We're filling that that God-shaped hole in our hearts that nothing else in this world will ever satisfy. I remember uh, when I preached here last July uh, as a, I mean, I wasn't even interim. I was like pulpit supply. I think it was my second sermon here. I, um, I talked about the, the Snickers logo, you know, the Snickers slogan, Snickers satisfies, right? Snickers satisfies. But I remember telling you guys that research has been done. Truthinadvertising.org has said that actually Snickers doesn't satisfy, <laughs> that each Snickers bar contains over 27 grams of sugar, and studies have shown that foods loaded with sugar, with simple sugar, ultimately leave you more hungry. You eat a Snickers bar, yeah, your, your blood sugar will, you know, it'll peak, but then it will plummet, leaving you more hungry than you were when you started. A Snickers bar may bring you like a, a temporary satisfaction, but the evidence suggests that eating a candy bar loaded with simple sugars is going to leave you more hungry in the end. Wow, our hearts are like that, aren't they? We reach for whatever we think will satisfy our restless hearts. And often these are good things. We reach for a healthy family, our own wellness, whatever, physical, emotional wellness. We look for a good job, maybe a loving community, a group of friends to not be lonely. We look for a sense of achievement and respect to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. But when we look to these good things to become our ultimate thing, they let us down every time. Nothing can satisfy us except the living God. He is ultimately good and ultimately perfect and all glorious. He is the only one who's able to fill that role of ultimate in our lives. Therefore, giving our lives away to him in in sacrificial worship, laying our whole bodies and lives down on the altar to him as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship, is the only way to thrive and flourish as he made us to. Nothing else will satisfy. So these people who walk the highways in their hearts desire to worship. They're happy to come into the house of the Lord. They're happy and blessed even when the dry spells come, it says. When they walk through the unforgiving valley of Bacah. How can they experience the the early spring rains in a, a valley of dryness? Because they're strengthened by the Lord. Look at verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. They all make it there. Because when you seek him, you find him. Jeremiah 29, right? When you seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him. All the pilgrims who who make the journey to the Lord's presence will safely arrive there in his courts. We, We theologians call this the perseverance of the saints, right? That once God has captured your heart, that he doesn't let go. His hesed love, his, his dogged, determined love will never let go no matter how far you may fall or may stray. And we also have assurance of our faith because we have someone on the throne who's looking out for us. The anointed one, the ruler of God's people who, who covers us by his authority and who ushers us all safely into the presence of God. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Scholars have understood this verse to be about the the human earthly king of Israel who was on the throne, the Lord's anointed. Remember Samuel poured the the oil on the head of, of David and Saul. 
But now we as Christians on this side of the cross see that we have one on the throne whose shield has indeed extinguished all the flaming arrows of the evil one that assail us. We have one on the throne who is no other than Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the holy and anointed chosen one of the universe. And now this, this last section, therefore, is, is about how the blessed and happy person puts their trust in the Lord. Look at verse 10. For one day, a day in your courts, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. If you've never experienced the all-satisfying presence of God in a deeply spiritual way, then this verse doesn't make sense to you. You don't get this verse. But for those of you who've been there, those of you who have, have been in God's presence, who've drawn near to the heart of God himself, the living God, and marveled in his goodness, in his beauty, in his perfection, then, then you know that it is far better to have a single day there near the heart of the Lord than a thousand uh, achievements in, in the tents of the wicked. It's so much better to be in the Lord's presence than anywhere else on earth. We may achieve great success or, or, or popularity among earthly endeavors, and in doing so, we make ourselves right at home with the wicked. We make compromises with the predominant prevailing culture around us. We, we justify our habitual sin when we dwell among the tents of the wicked. But the reality is that that kind of life can never, ever satisfy it can never lead to the kind of flourishing and thriving that happens when you give yourself away in worship to the holy God of the universe. We need to remind ourselves of this truth daily because we're so tempted to dwell among the wicked. Let's finish the psalm, verses 11 and 12. The final beatitude is here. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Happy is the one who trusts in you. We worship the God who is both our sun, the source of light and life in our lives, the one who gives us joy and purpose and, and fulfillment and satisfaction. And he's also our shield. He's also the one who covers us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because of the shield with which our Savior has covered us. This is why we don't trust in our own reputation when humans try to bestow honor and favor on us because we know that the Lord is the one who bestows favor and honor. Ultimately, true favor and honor comes solely from the Lord. And yet we are so tempted to constantly look elsewhere for that sense of acceptance. Teenagers, this is something that all teenagers go through, right? To look other places for a sense of self-worth. I can't imagine growing up in a social media age, what that does for a, a teenager, the pressure that that brings. And let us remember that God is not some easily offended deity. I think most people in the Bible Belt still think that God is like some jealous deity on his throne with lightning bolts just waiting to zap you when you mess up. It's not who God is. Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. It's about the holy God who loves us so much that he died 
for us. He's a perfectly loving Father who it says here doesn't hold back any good thing from us. Yes, He keeps all the bad stuff back, but He lavishes the riches of His grace and His amazing love on us. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3.1 Worship is about learning to receive this, this, these good gifts from God more and more. To receive and then to respond. That's what worship's about. To live constantly open to the good gifts that God has given us. It is indeed the triune God of the universe who is constantly giving us these good things, grace upon grace. And the text here says that these good things only come to those who walk uprightly. There's a caveat, right? Not to those who are curved in on themselves. St. Augustine, again, uh, famously said that sinners, the, the state of a sinner is to be curved in on themselves. In curvatus in se, in Latin. Curved in on themselves. I know that Martin Luther and other theologians expounded upon that, uh, that, that definition of sinners. We know that walking uprightly means standing upright with our hands out, learning to live open to the grace that God is constantly pouring out upon us, learning to receive that more and more and not wallowing in self-pity by focusing on ourselves. Oh, I'm such a victim. I'm so, I'm, poor me, poor me. no. God saved us by His grace. I know many of you, like me, were, were just absolutely horrified yesterday watching the events in Charlottesville unfold. To, to, to think that this is our nation and to see what's happening. I, I read some, some really convicting articles. I saw one person said, if, if you ever wondered what your response would be if you were alive during the civil rights era, I was not. I was born in 81. Then, then you're doing it right now. What you're doing right now is how you would have responded to the civil rights era. Some deeply troubling acts of terrorism that we're seeing in our own nation. I was talking to Miles Hutcherson. That's his hometown. He grew up right around the corner from there. These, this affects us as a nation deeply. And I read one article that really captured a lot of things well, I thought. Of course, it was written by a majority world person. It was written by Herman Lopez, a Hispanic man. And he described a sociological phenomenon called white fragility. He said that sociologists have, have determined that several major, uh, you know, majority race people you know, in, in our nation have, have insulated themselves so deeply from other races that they become fragile when racial stress comes up. And as I read that, I, I, I said, this is exactly what Augustine was talking about. They're so curved in on themselves that they can't live openly in the grace of the Lord. The, the article went on to say that they consider themselves as, as victims, that they're, they're completely terrorized, and, and the reality of our nation would show that, that white males have dominated our history in this nation for many, many, all of the years that we've been around. And yet somehow they're so bent in on themselves that all they can see is their own little world. And so they begin to see, I'm a victim, poor me, right? We all tend to do this, though. It's easy to point the finger at them. We all have to learn to live uprightly, receiving God's grace constantly and responding in gratitude as worship, as a response to what God has done for us. May we learn to, to live 
uprightly by receiving constantly the good things that God wants to give us as we constantly unbend on ourselves and open to his grace and glory. Then we will learn to trust him more and more. Look at verse 12 again, the last beatitude. Blessed, happy is the one who trusts in you, O God. We have nothing to fear, right? Fear is is not ever the the right choice for Christians, right? These these men who are so afraid that the government's going to take something from them, they don't have to be afraid. The Lord God is on his throne, right? We've been given a spirit not of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-control. If we can learn to live uprightly, then we'll trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. If we in all our ways will acknowledge him, then he will, what? Make our paths straight. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus, isn't it? It's so sweet when you do it. It's so sweet when, when Jan and, and Mike Bennett give up his law practice and trust in Jesus and move to Venezuela. The world says, that's crazy. They say, no, it's so sweet. It's the best way to live. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad that Lily and Jada and Jude have learned to trust him. I'm so glad I've learned to trust him. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend. And I know that he is with me and he will be with me to the end. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to trust his cleansing blood. And in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus just from sin and self to cease. Just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. We're going to have a time of response now. We're going to have a time, not a hymn of response, but a chance to sing these words back to God a time of worship, a time to receive life and rest and joy and peace. We're going to experience the sweetness of coming into the Lord's presence together. We're we're here in his house this morning and we have a chance now to sing this text. Trey's going to come and lead us in an old praise song, Better is One Day. The words are just scripture. The words are the text of, of the Psalms, Psalm 84 and one verse of Psalm 27. Psalm 27 and 4 says, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing I ask, and I'll be asking this week, to abide in God's perfect, beautiful presence, to gaze upon his beauty, to see his perfect good ways in my life, in the life of our church, in the life of my family. For here my heart is satisfied within his presence, in the shadow of his wings. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, you can come to the altar, whatever you need to do during this time as we sing. Let's respond to what God's done for us by proclaiming the goodness of his presence together.